Welcome to Tiski Sour, where we will once again be narrating the accelerating decline of everything in Britain on this Friday night. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm doing very well, Michael. Look, some things are getting better. Tiski Sour goes from strength to strength under the helmsmanship of Michael Walker. This show is the only institution in Britain that is currently um, working as it should. I suppose also the ladies' football Plausibly. team, maybe. But that is the theme that is running through tonight's show. Terrible leadership candidates. The next prime minister is going to be rubbish. Everyone's on strike because their bosses can't organize a piss up in a brewery. Lots to get through. Another day, another reason to conclude that nothing in Britain works. This week, we've already covered the catastrophe in the NHS and the outrage that is our leaky privatized water system. Today's theme, transport. The RMT union is out on strike again, this time on London's underground, as well as on certain rail routes across the country. Their members are demanding the right to see details of new funding plans for transport for London and for assurances that jobs, pensions and working conditions will be protected. There are also bus strikes happening in West London and Surrey. 1,600 Unite members who work for bus operator London United are staging a 48-hour walkout over pay. They have been offered a mere 3.6% rise in 2022 and 4.2% in 2023, so a significant real-terms pay cut. London United is owned by the French transport company RATP. Last year, it made 207 million euros in profit. Today's actions follow nationwide strikes on Thursday, when 40,000 rail workers downed tools across the country. The RMT and TSSA unions walked out and the country's rail services were cut by 80%. And they'll strike again on Saturday. It's all because Network Rail is refusing to negotiate a reasonable pay increase and the protection of working conditions. Strikes are, of course, necessary when bosses refuse to negotiate, but they're also hugely disruptive to ordinary workers, a point that Mick Lynch was keen to address on LBC. I've just spoke to a, to a lad whose brother works in McDonald's and uh, his sister-in-law works in McDonald's as well. They're on zero-hours contract. They've got two days now where they can't get to work, which means they don't get paid. So just for, for kickoff, for starters, just speak directly to them, if you would. Well, I'm sorry for that. Um, and zero-hours contracts are a national disgrace. What needs to happen with those contracts is they need to be made illegal so that when people have problems such as this, and let's not forget, if, he, if they were sick, uh, with COVID or with a genuine complaint, they wouldn't get paid either. So this is the modern mode of uh, British business and British capitalism, if you want to use that word, outsourcing um, zero-hours contracts, casual work, precarious work, whatever you want to call it. And that's exactly what we're fighting in, this, in these disputes. They want to drive railway workers and other key workers onto those type of precarious contracts where you're at the beck and call of the employer and there's no balance in the workplace between what they can demand of you and what you can expect back for your labour. So the problem there is not, obviously it's an immediate problem of the railway disputes, but the problem, the long-term problem, is the precarious state of British employment and what has happened to the workplace in the last 40 years since the power of the unions was diminished under the Thatcher era. And previously, we used to be able to organise hospitality. Unions were very strong in hospitality areas. And they've been wiped out, if we're frank. So people are at beck and call of very ruthless, profitable companies. And you won't find many corporations more profitable than McDonald's. But they outsource their restaurants, of course. Uh, most McDonald's in this country are not owned or have any connection with McDonald's. Yeah. They're for a franchise system that then use zero hours and casual work. But you know, it, That's it, a disgrace. It, it, I mean, let, let's say everything you're saying is true. I, I believe it is. That's not... It's no comfort to these two people, is it? This is, this is in a way, the, the pincer movement in that they're going to be looking at the protection your members enjoy while paying the price for that protection being exercised literally in their own pockets. Indeed, and I accept that, and I, I do understand it. But the, the dilemma we would have then is that everybody else in the economy goes down to the level that these two people are, and that is what we call the race to the bottom. That's exactly where corporate Britain wants to take us. So the failure of rail bosses to negotiate with their workers has caused chaos on the railways. And the failure of the economy to provide secure jobs for all means other people's pay packets will suffer. 
But it's not just strikes that are causing disruption to passengers. And the gross incompetence of those at the top is being felt particularly sharply by anyone who travels on Avanti West Coast lines. Avanti West Coast runs trains between London and Manchester, as well as to Glasgow, Edinburgh, Birmingham and Liverpool. It's the worst train operator in Britain with the lowest possible customer satisfaction ratings, and it's received over 50,000 complaints in two years. And it's now reduced the service on its key London to Manchester line, slashing it from three trains per hour to just one. Here's Mayor of Manchester, Andy Burnham, laying into the company on BBC Newsnight. What we've got, Kirsty, is a failing railway company conspiring with a failing government to cover up their joint collective well, hang on a minute. to run the railway. Well, hang on a minute. You know, it, it, the, when Grant Shapp, when the, the government took over Northern Rail, that didn't sort things out. That's the, you know, It's perhaps not the panacea that you think it would be. So is there another way through this? Well, at the moment, what I do know is they are throwing money at these companies, but they are not providing the service. Uh, what we need in the short term is an ultimatum to Avanti West Coast. They need to come up with a credible plan within days to restore the full timetable. And that means at least three trains an hour from Manchester to London. Or they should remove the franchise. They should take the contract off them. And, and there can't be any other alternative. Well, Can you let them off the hook and let them carry on inflicting this misery on people? Of course well, you but this is But this, is, you know, the, this main dispute, though, is between the workers and the management, and they want a cost-of-living increase. You know, would you give them 10.1%? Well, you're conflating two issues, and the mainstream media have been missing this issue about Avanti. The government are trying to bundle it up with... Well, with that, we, we can separate, separate no, 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 and look sorry, at them I'm sorry, you're going to hear me here because you're bundling up two issues. This is about a train company that hasn't got enough drivers to fulfill yes. the timetable. I, I accept, what they I need the drivers. is drivers to work non-contracted hours, but they've lost goodwill. And that is the problem, the breakdown between right. well, the, the, the workforce you... and the company. That was a hugely influential journalist seemingly trying to blame the RMT strikes for Avanti's and the government's mismanagement, which is exactly the line the government and Avanti have taken. In reality... The reason Avanti has cut its London to Manchester service from three trains per hour to one per hour is because they don't employ enough drivers to run a proper service. They've instead been relying on a small number of drivers agreeing to work overtime to make sure the trains run on time. And now the drivers have said they've had enough. They won't do voluntary overtime anymore and they're entitled to their days off. Someone who might want a few days off now is Transport Secretary Grant Shapps, who suffered this stinker on BBC this morning. You incorrectly told your viewers there's only one train running from Manchester to London. I think that's not, that's not the case, even under the reduced timetable. It's four trains an hour. A direct train? Direct trains, yeah. There's only one an hour at the moment. Uh, well, all I can tell you is there are still trains running down the West Coast uh, main line. The strikes do not uh, enhance the situation. And yes, well, let's not get. But I mean, uh, I think we're getting bogged down running. in a, a Tomorrow, detail there here. Won't be trains running. We're getting bogged down in a detail here, but I think it matters actually. There is only one direct train an hour between London and Manchester at the moment. When you're saying are direct, you saying, are you saying right? trains that, that right don't stop wrong? at any other? Uh, you say when you say direct, you, are you saying trains that stop at no other? stations, um, because most trains stop at Milton Keynes along the way, yes. for example. Well, they've always done I'm that. not quite clear on your definition. They've always done it. There's never been a train that's gone directly from London, yeah. Houston to so Manchester. It's not the case that, that's never been the case. strike days, which I think is where you may be getting confused here, uh, that's not the case. There has recently been an issue where Aslef called for action short of a strike, and three days later, there was a 90% reduction in train drivers available to drive that route. Uh, clearly coordinated unofficial action by ASLEF, uh, meaning that there aren't trains available. Uh, under that reduced timetable, it went down to four trains uh, an hour. Well, I suspect we'll, we're both going to go and check our timetables to see uh, exactly when the trains are available over the next uh, few weeks or so. So could we have got that wrong? Could Andy Burnham have got that wrong? Could the BBC have got that wrong? Could, in fact, it be the case that there are four trains per hour running from London? To Manchester. Surely the Secretary of State for Transport must know that kind of thing. Well, let's go to the horse's mouth. This is a statement from Avanti West Coast. 
which trains will be running. We plan to run four trains an hour from London, Euston, one to each of Glasgow, Liverpool, Manchester, and Birmingham. So there is only one an hour. There it is, one train per hour from Manchester to London until further notice. As I said, we have been talking about lots of things collapsing this week, the NHS, water, the privatized energy companies. Now we've got a transport secretary that seems to be not just not on top of his brief, but completely divorced from his brief. What is going on here? Yeah, I suppose the first question for me, Michael, is does, does Grant Shapps not know what a direct train is? And it's quite concerning if he thinks a direct train is a train that goes directly from Manchester Piccadilly to London Euston. I mean, no, I don't think any train's ever done that. Um, th- that is quite concerning for me. Uh, I think he's obviously got confused there, right? Because as you've said from the press release, there were four trains an hour going to four separate locations. And I think he's just... He's got himself in a muddle, but we see this repeatedly with the Tories, repeatedly. Just yesterday, John Redwood, uh, Thatcherite MP, passed his best now over the hill, but he was a big name in the Tories in the 1990s, early 1990s. He once ran for the leadership against John Major, I believe in 95, 94, something like that, 96. Very right wing, believes in basically cutting taxes, the solution to absolutely everything. And he's openly saying, look, we can't give train drivers and railway workers and people throughout the supply chain of, of working on rail, whether that's RMT workers, ASLEF workers, TSSA workers, we can't give them big pay rises because fewer people are going to be using trains now. That's just life. And he's referring to very old data. You know, the latest data suggests that between 92 and 95% of people are back on trains. If you go on a train, you'll know that they're very, very busy right now. People are making up for lost time post-pandemic. And on the one hand, you have people like Redwood saying, well, we can't afford to do this. We can't give them pay rises because there are fewer people on the trains. That's not true, by the way. It's not accurate. And then you've got Grant Shapps saying, I think a year ago or maybe earlier this year, with Great British Rail, when they released the report about how they want to run the railways in this country, that they were building for greater capacity and more people using more trains. So the question then is, what are the Tories wanting to do with British Rail? Is the plan to actually, sorry, we can't give workers pay rises because fewer people are going to take train journeys? Or are they still saying they want more people using the train more often? We don't know. They're making it up as they go along. The argument they make that this is because the unions are doing some sort of unofficial strike does seem very pathetic. Now, I mean, the timing, maybe it is the case that workers are now less inclined to do overtime than they were before. But the whole point of overtime is that workers don't have to do it. If your whole system relies on having workers constantly doing overtime, this is, I know there's a debate about something in the contract says Sunday will always be overtime. I'm not actually an expert on that particular topic. But here, that doesn't seem to be relevant because the, the service has been cut by 66% every day of the week. So it seems that mm. unless workers are working overtime every day of the week, they have to cut their service by 66%. Now, that is a badly run business, terribly run business. Yeah, I mean, I commute in regularly, right? I live on the South Coast. I come into London. And very, very frequently, particularly with Southern, which I think until recently, probably until Avanti had the worst record in terms of delivering its targets, very regularly they say, sorry, there's a delay or train cancellation, signal's not working. And then actually you'd look on the app or the website, you'd look somewhere else and they say, we don't have enough drivers. So they're even telling customers in real time data, which is contradictory. I mean, I'm not saying which one it is. I suspect they don't have the drivers rather than it's constantly being the signal failures. So. I mean, we're now seeing dysfunction and failure built into the everyday reality of British Rail. Whether or not the workers are on strike, whether or not, like you say, they're willing to work on Sundays, it is the norm. And this is about these megabucks bosses trying to basically buy themselves a reasonable excuse for failure, which is 24 hours a day. They don't run 24 hours a day, but there's maintenance too, seven days a week. Um, And I think you'd have to be a fool to think otherwise. I mean, Labour have attacked the government for rewarding Avanti. So this is a report from The Guardian. The under-fire rail operator of anti-West Coast has been rewarded for failure, Labour said, after the company was paid more than £17 million in taxpayers' money by ministers for performance and management fees in just two years, despite being the worst performing operator on the rail network. The figures from 2019 to 2020 and 2020 to 2021 include almost £4 million in bonuses to Avanti for, quote, operational performance, quote, customer service, and, quote, acting as a good and efficient operator. Now, do you know what that good and efficient operator charges for an open return from London to Manchester? A journey that takes just two hours, £370. And that's if there's a train 
running. Let's move away from rail now, because this weekend we'll also see a significant strike begin at one of Britain's ports. 2,000 Unite members working for Felixstowe Port will down tools for eight days. They're fighting for a decent pay offer too, after the port's owner, Felixstowe Dock and Railway Company, offered a pitiful 5% increase. Again, that's a significant real terms wage cut. Felixstowe Dock and Railway Company is itself owned by Hong Kong-based CK Hutchison Holding Limited. That company made £2 billion in profits in the first half of 2022 alone. Felixstowe Port is responsible for 48% of all of the UK's container freight. Risk modelling company, the Russell Group, so not the group of universities, predicts that over $800 million in trade will be disrupted over the course of the strike. So, unless employers agree to negotiate and dig into those huge profits, it's going to cost the British economy a bundle. Aaron, this seems like this could be pretty significant. If you've got 48% of trade or container trade going through this port, the workers are going on an eight-day strike. I mean, that's a significant strike. That could be massive, no? Very tasty, Michael. You know, logistics is one of those areas where workers have a lot of leverage. You see that with, you know, longshoremen and dock workers historically. One of the reasons why we get containerization is, yeah, of course, partly it's much quicker, but also dock workers were, they were creating friction often because they would want high wages, they would go on strike, and a great way of sort of dealing with that and having to rely on fewer dock workers was sort of containerization revolution that you get in the 60s and the 70s. It's a very serious strike, and it's very different to sort of the paint-by-numbers stuff you saw in the public sector. With the best will in the world, the public sector, sort of workers who went on strike in the early 2010s, you know, one day from Unison, two day from Unison or, or, or the UC or whatever, best will in the world, this is extraordinarily serious for the health of British capitalism. It's a similar thing, I think, actually, with the CWU and postal workers. They've balloted to strike for four days already. That is happening. Two days at the end of this month, two days early next month. They're now saying they're willing to go on strike for a further four days. So you'd have eight days where postal workers are on strike. That is very serious. And that's very serious, as with what we're seeing in Felixstowe, because the workers who are agreeing to engage in the strike action with the CWU, you had, I think, 72% turnout, 98% voting to strike for the second wave of strikes. They're doing that because they're being offered, as postal workers, a 2% pay rise with no conditions. There is a bit more with certain conditions. I think best case is still getting 5.5%, not even that, but that's a different story. We'll talk about that next week. They're being offered a 2% pay rise, but eight, nine pounds a week. You're seeing inflation run at 10%. So when you're looking at yourself getting poorer by 8%, you're losing 8% of your spending power in one year, all of a sudden, eight day strike, which is a big, big deal. They will lose a lot of money doing that, but also, so of course, will Royal Mail Group, they'll be hit. Their bottom line will be hurt a hell of a lot becomes a lot more reasonable and rational. Same with Felix, though. In normal times, that would be an extraordinary strike. You know, the government would be doing everything it could to stop it. This critical piece of national infrastructure. Now they, they really are going to struggle because even for the more conservatively minded worker, I don't mean party political. I mean, conservatives as in they don't really want to put their head above the parapet. Even for somebody like that, they will still think, well, look, my real wages are going to fall eight, nine percent this year, probably eight, nine percent next year. This can't carry on. You know, I'm getting really poor really quickly. So you're going to see more of this. Workers agreeing, consenting, participating in increasingly long radical strikes. Moving on, although on a similar theme. The UK isn't the only country where rail workers have gone on strike. In Australia, the rail union has ordered a series of strikes in Sydney around concerns over the safety of new trains. And along with downing tools and limiting the hours they'll work, Australian rail workers have another tactic at their disposal. We're going to play a clip from Sky Australia in one second, but just to explain beforehand, Opal is a smart card payment system used on Sydney's stations. Sydney Rail staff are expected to leave Opal Gates open from today until September 6 as part of industrial action over pay and safety. Passengers are being asked to still tap on and off their journeys. If they don't, the potential loss of ticketing revenue could be up to $10 million. More work stoppages are planned for the airport and Bankstown lines on Wednesday. It's a genius idea and it's called a revenue strike. It keeps the trains running, but doesn't charge travellers to use them. Everybody wins. 
except the bosses, of course. People can still get around, only now it's for free, while the unions are still able to deprive the companies of the revenue their labour generates. So why don't the RMT union do this kind of industrial action here? A viewer put that question to Mick Lynch on Talk TV. Now, I don't know why you don't do what the Chinese, um, the Japanese do, sorry, which is keep on running the service. Just don't take fare. Let people get on for free. Screw the companies, not the people. It's interesting. Screw the companies, not the people. Keep the service going. That's the punter. That's how I wanted to do it. I think that's important, right? Yeah, that is important. I understand exactly uh, what that gentleman's saying, and it's disruption. We would love to do the type of action that he's described. Guess what? The Conservative com- uh, government has made that illegal for decades. We cannot do that. If we do that, they will sequestrate my union, fine us millions of pounds and shut us down. That is illegal industrial action in this country. We've explored that with our lawyers and they won't let us do it. We would love to run that service, even at the cost of sacrificing some of our pay, perhaps. But a revenue strike, as it's called, it's been used in Australia and Japan very successfully so that we can run the system on behalf of the people and be empathetic with their needs. As that gentleman was pointing out, we're blocked from doing that. McLynch is right among the many anti-union laws passed by the Thatcher and major governments was one which allows companies to sue trade unions if they encourage customers not to pay for the services they use. So you could essentially bankrupt the trade union for something like a revenue strike. And that was just one of many laws that banned trade unions from taking more unconventional action. Another significant one was a ban on secondary strikes. They are when workers working for different employers go on strike to support industrial action in another business or sector. They're legal in most other countries, and until the 1980s, they had been legal in the UK since 1946. Aaron, when it comes to trade union rights, we're still living in Thatcher's world, aren't we? Very much so. We're looking at the most regressive, repressive trade union and labour laws, and certainly in Europe, What I do find interesting is when people sort of have these little nuggets and they say, have you thought of this as if these weren't live debates in the trade trade union movement for 40 years, given the deluge of political attacks there and their members have been subject to? You know, you saw the NUM, which was Britain's most powerful trade union in 1983, 84 with the miners' strike throughout the mid 80s, let's say. You saw it destroyed systematically by the Conservative government. And the reason why the National Union of Miners, the NUM, was destroyed was because it had political leverage and power. That was why. It could help to remove a government if that government was unfair and unscrupulous with its members, which is precisely what happened in 1974 when they contributed. So the common sense and received wisdom was to the demise of the Heath government in 1974. And of course, Labour came back in, Harold Wilson came back in. And so the NUM as a result had to be destroyed because it was an accumulation of, of workers' power gave workers not only industrial muscle in the workplace to argue for higher wages, it also gave them a political, not just voice, political leverage in in the national life of the country to affect certain outcomes in terms of socialist or social democratic policy, in terms of public services and the social wage, in terms of basically not rigging the system in favour of the rich constantly. So if you look at what the NUM was, what's the equivalent for the Tories? It's kind of like the City of London, right? So you smash your opponent's source of strength and power, organized labor, and you unleash your own one. The 1% and the financial parasites in the city of London. You get the big bang, deregulation, canary wharf, financialization on, on steroids. So that's the context that people like Mick Lynch have been working in for 30, 40 years. You know, Mick Lynch started as a, a trade unionist in the 1990s, 1980s. I mean, he, he gets really into things in the 1990s because he goes to work on the Eurotunnel project. That's where he really cuts his teeth as a member of the RMT. As I understand it, he'd been blacklisted from the construction industry at that point. So somebody like Mick Lynch, you know, this is, I mean, I don't mean to be mean to the ch- gentleman asking the question, but somebody like Mick Lynch has been thinking and acting on these kinds of questions and problems his entire working life. Have you thought of this? No, the assumption is that unions are stupid. They don't know what they're doing. They got defeated by the Tories and successive governments because they weren't up to the task. They're dinosaurs. They're incapable. No, these are very organized, highly intelligent, sophisticated people. They're the best of the best. They lost because they were smashed by the, the overwhelming force of the British state during the 1980s. By the way, that wasn't in the public's interest. It wasn't in the, Brit- the British national interest, I think, for a bunch of reasons. We won't sort of talk about them here. 
So that'll be my takeaway, Michael. We're still in Thatcher's world. And I think people should sort of move beyond the cliches of thinking that trade unions don't think very hard and rigorously about how we move beyond it. Look at things like enough is enough. They're making the grounds and, and the hard yards. And it's far more than the, the London big house pundits and the policy wonks in SW1. I'm going to push back on a technicality and for self-interested reasons, defend the right to ask stupid questions. Because I feel like the <laughs> fact that that guy asked that question meant that we got that interesting answer from Mick Lynch. And that does apply to actually lots of areas of union struggle, where I think people have these, you know, what seem like quite natural and reasonable critiques of, of trade unions and strikes. You often hear people say, well, why don't they strike for other people's wages? Why are they only striking for their own wages? Well, because it's illegal, actually. <laughs> trade unions used to strike for other people's wages. That was, you know, the concept of solidarity. Now, trade union laws are such that you can very specifically only strike for your own conditions, and it has to be sort of like a material issue. So you can't go on strike to try and stop a war. I mean, you could, you're not going to get thrown in prison if you do it, but you're not going to be protected from losing a job. So you only have protections to go on strike if your action falls within these very specific parameters, which were massively tightened under the Thatcher and major government and haven't really been expanded since. We still live within that regime, which means that many of the things that you might think, well, why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? If they're not doing it, it's more often than not because it's illegal to do it. They can't strike in solidarity with other people. They can't just open the ticket barriers. They have to very specifically go on strike for their own benefit. Otherwise, it's illegal. Like it, it is almost, and this was quite clever of Thatcher really, wasn't it? It's was sort of like saying, my analysis of trade unions, you know, I'm being Thatcher here. My analysis of trade unions is they are a self-interested part of the economy. They're just trying to increase their own wages and use their leverage to disrupt society until they get those wages. But that's her sort of cynical analysis of trade unions. Mm -hmm. And then she makes laws so that trade unions are actually only allowed to behave in that way. So she's saying they're selfish, and then she bans them from doing anything that would obviously not be selfish. And obviously, I, you know, I don't think people striking for their own wages is selfish, but you see where I'm, I'm going with this. I think it's a very astute observation, Michael, and I reverse my previous conclusion. We should have more <laughs> stupid questions. Yes. It was because it was, you're right. It was, it was a very, it was a very illuminate. As ever, Michael, you've weighed in with some very powerful counterintuitive thinking because the answer was worth it. You're right. Yeah, I just, I just don't want people to be judged for asking stupid questions because I might be in, in trouble if that were the case. Let's move on to our next story. The targets of the Tory leadership campaign have been grimly predictable. While Britain suffers a cost of living crisis, it's not inflation or poverty that gets attacked, but rather migrants and so-called woke culture. There is one victim of Tory ire that's been more curious, though. Solar farms. This was Liz Truss at a recent hustings. And I think one of the most depressing sights when you're driving through England is seeing fields that should be full of crops or livestock full of solar panels. That was Liz Truss explaining how she gets teary-eyed when confronted with renewables. And Rishi Sunak has also now got in on the Solar Bashing Act. He's written for The Telegraph, saying that he is also opposed to solar panels on farmland. On my watch, we will not lose swathes of our best farmland to solar farms. Instead, we should be making sure that solar panels are installed on commercial buildings, on sheds and on properties. Likewise, we must protect our best farmland from rewilding, which should not take place at the expense of food production. Sunak clearly thinks this is a vote winner with Tory members. As the campaign put the quote out as a graphic, this is Rishi in front of a combine harvester pledging to defend fields from dastardly green energy. Now, it might not surprise you that this Tory crusade, like most of their others, is not grounded in reality. Britain currently has 23 million acres of farmland. Solar panels currently cover 0.03% of it. It's also the case that a solar farm doesn't even need to take farmland away from its traditional uses. So it has turned out, according to multiple trials around the world, that solar farms and sheep make a great combination. This is footage from a solar farm in Minnesota. The solar farm owners are using sheep to keep the grass short around their solar panels. Of course, you could also then shear the sheep, raise lambs, whatever else it is that sheep farmers do. Aaron, why do you think the Tories have, have really taken aim at, at green energy? It's not just actually solar farms. They've also said they will block onshore wind, lots of things that I don't think of as 
as an eyesore. There are much worse eyesores than a solar panel or a wind turbine. But why is this the target they, they've chosen? Because they're committed to being pathologically stupid and wrong. That's the simple answer. <laughs> they are absolutely committed to doing the worst possible thing virtually all of the time. We're in an energy crisis, Michael. We're seeing our bills rise and rise and rise. We're going to see a massive increase in terms of heating our homes over the course of this winter. Now, electricity isn't about heating your home. I mean, probably at some point in the next 15, 20 years, it will be. But for now, it's not. But we surely, you would think, given what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, have a, have a reasonable discussion around energy security in this country. How can we become relatively independent in terms of energy generation in the United Kingdom? Good question, right? Well, I would presume it means not sort of depending on global supply chains of oil and gas. Now, some Tories would agree that's why we should start fracking instead. This is the commodity which is skyrocketing in price as a result of a war in the former Soviet Union. I was going to say Eastern Europe. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's the east of Eastern Europe. It's the furthest east of Europe you can go, you know, east of the Dnepr in Ukraine. Why the hell would you say we need to use more of the energy? You know, the energy thing that's just kind of gone up like a sort of a hockey stick in price. Let's use more of that. Oh, yeah. And the energy source like solar and wind which has been getting cheaper literally every year since I was born. You know, solar energy has been getting cheaper every single year since it was first used on a NASA satellite in the mid-1950s, right? It's been getting cheap, cheaper every single year, every single year. It will get cheaper every single year for the rest of our lives, Mike, both solar and wind and lithium-ion batteries, which, which store the energy that those things create. They're getting cheaper all the time. And gas and, and oil, are, they fluctuate and they're subject to political volatility. And you're saying you care about energy independence, but you don't want solar and wind. You want oil and gas. It's because they're committed to being wrong. They're committed to being wrong. These are the last people you want running the country. These are the last people who are going to start solving problems, whether it's housing, energy, climate change, cost of living, public service. They're not going to solve anything because they're committed to being pathologically wrong. Whether that's dumping shit in our rivers and the seas, whether that's blaming Stalinist targeting for the, you know, why we've got no new houses and flats in this country, or, or whether it's deciding to build HS2, except for this little spur that would allow you to connect places like Manchester and Bradford. Okay, you will spend a hundred billion, but we won't spend the extra five billion to reinvigorate the economy of this particular area, which has been left out of economic growth in this country for 40, 50 years. They're wrong about everything. They are wrong about everything. It's like, you know, one of those people, whatever they say, just do the opposite. It's a very good basis, by the way, if you want to start creating really smart, effective public policy solutions. Do the complete <laughs> opposite of what the conservatives say. We can do a new think tank, Michael. You don't even need to publish research papers. <laughs> just kind of look, look, and this is what Liz Truss says. We're doing the opposite. Thank you. That's our reporting. £10,000, please. And you'd be right virtually all the time. No, I do. I think you're onto something there because it kind of is the only explanation. Because, you know, there are lots of people who are, you know, lots of centrists. I've even seen, I think, the, the guy who wrote the last Tory manifesto sort of come out and said, this is a silly policy. And what they seem to be categorizing this as, you know, this idea we shouldn't have solar farms on agricultural land is it's nimbyism. You know, it's not in my backyard. People who live in villages who are more likely to be Tory party members who like the scenes, you know, of, of, of rolling fields around them and they don't want them to be covered in anything that looks remotely modern. That, that's sort of the argument. This is nimbyism. And they still think it should be overcome. Sky Robert Colville. But what it's not consistent with is the opinion that Tory members seem to have on fracking. Now, I've watched a few hustings throughout this, this, this process. And one of the things that gets the biggest round of applause is when one of them says, we need to do, what well, Trust or Sunak says, we need to do more fracking. And everyone's like, Aah! it's like, if what you want is your environment to look, you know, untainted and, and traditional and beautiful, why are you okay with fracking? What, what's, the, what's the difference between fracking, which requires, you know, a lot of big machinery and I imagine it's very noisy, and solar panels. One of them is a good policy and one of them is a bad policy. But there is nothing else that divides them, right? Really bizarre. Also, rewilding. If, if your issue is with solar panels, oh, it doesn't look natural, then why are you also against rewilding? Like, how dare the government come along and try and grow forests on these fields? By the way, we don't live in a society where the, the government just says, we're taking your field, we're planting trees on it, and you're not going to get anything in return. This is the government offering to buy that land off farmers. The farmers, I think, are quite happy about it generally because you know, farmland isn't the most valuable thing in this country. If you can install solar panels or if you can sell it to the National Trust or whoever rewilds it, that's not a bad deal. But because these are sensible policies, to become Tory leader, you have to say you're against them. 
I mean, there are some farmers, Michael, who are voluntarily rewilding parts of their own estate. I mean, what, what, what's Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak going to do? They're going to stop them? They're going to send in the army? You can't rewild your own estate? Sorry. Well, and you get these same Tories, they walk around in their bar. I've got a barber, so don't, I don't want any sort of hatred at, you know, oh, Aaron Bassani, anti-barber. I've got a barber coat. Walking around with their barbers and their wellies <laughs> and their flat caps and their, you know, their English pointer and their Springer Spaniel go, oh, I love the British countryside. Okay, let's have some more. Let's, let's rewild, create some new forests. Fuck you. Well, you can't love it that much then. Contrary to it, it's addicted to not solving problems, addicted to shareholder value and rising profits and all these things. If it fucks everything, including their own communities and their futures, I don't quite know what's going to have to happen. I think a lot of these conservative members, Michael, because they are completely unrepresentative, by the way, even of conservative voters. Conservative voters, you know, they have no problem, for instance, with onshore wind. Conservative voters have no problem with it. Highly effective, efficient way of generating cheap energy. And by the way, Michael, they're saying, oh, we want untouched, untrammeled countryside. What the hell are electricity pylons? We've had these in our countryside since the 1930s. What? That's not an eyesore, but solar panels are. What? Roads. So roads. Well, roads aren't an eyesore. Yeah. Um, Fucking idiots. Rolling fields aren't that. Like, I've spent more time sort of in the, the English countryside this summer for some reason. I suppose because I've taken more holidays than usual. I went to Glastonbury, into Devon, I think. I forget where I've been. But the fields, you know, when you're on that long train journey, kind of dull. You know, the, the British countryside looks kind of boring until you get to the forests, until you get to the reservoirs. Grow more forests, build more reservoirs. These are the things that make the terrain interesting. We just have field after field after field after field. It all looks the same. Let's shake it up a little bit. I don't understand why you would oppose that unless, as Aaron says, you are just addicted to making bad policy. And I think there's a culture war thing there, isn't it? It's sort of like a, if this is what the climate change nuts want, we're going to do the opposite. We won't have a solar panel, but do come along and frack and build a road over our farmland. Let's go to our final story. Owen Jones is on fire at the moment, and he didn't hold back this week when a caller to Channel 5 blamed Britain's economic woes on the young. A lot of people like to go after young people and go on about how easy they have it. Young people have been screwed over for ages. Their living standards have been stagnating and falling, unlike previous generations who had a better lot in life than their parents. They're often driven into insecure works where they have to work all ridiculous hours just to live. I'm talking about Deliveroo, I'm talking about Uber, I'm talking about all these precarious jobs where people work massive hours and often get very little pay. They don't have the pensions of your generations. They don't have the security of jobs of your generation either. At the same time, they're often saddled with debt because they went to university, uh, which has become a precondition in this country to getting many jobs. Their lives have become very, very hard. They're working very hard. But they, their, their wages are falling and have let's, been falling for the let, longest period. Let's let Tony respond. Uh, Tony, oh. what do you make of what uh, Owen just said? Hold on. When, when we bought our home, we saved, my wife and myself, we saved, we put deposit down. We went into a house with nothing. All it had got was a cooker and a sink and a fireplace. Nowadays, when they want to buy a house, they want it fully carpeted, fitted kitchens, fitted bedrooms, and they want a four-by-four four on the drive. Now, I live opposite a children's nursery, and I see parents turn up here at 8 o'clock in the morning, and they've got, they got Mercedes, BMWs, expensive cars. Tony, I'm sorry. Home ownership has collapsed amongst younger people in this country, not because people have high expectations about having renovated properties. It's because house prices have ro risen astronomically, and the ratio yeah. between the average wage in this country and house prices has massively gone up. So it's just not possible to afford it. And I'm sorry, Tony, again, there's this problem in this country with a lot of political debates where people think the plural of anecdote is data. They think that they've seen something in their street or something, and they think, Absolutely. that's British society. Well, I'm sorry, Tony, the evidence doesn't bear up what you're saying, because British workers work some of the longest hours okay. in the whole of Europe, okay. and younger workers in particular are driven into low-paid, often zero-hour contracts, where they work lots of hours but get very little back. <laughs> that's very well put. I can't believe that guy thinks that people aren't buying houses because they can't, you know, there's all these houses that don't have fitted carpets that we're refusing to buy. We're waiting for the very expensive houses with, with carpets to come along. Owen mentioned a couple of things I want to pick up on. So the first was about student debt, which for the average new graduate amounts to £40,000. 
Supporters of tuition fees argue this doesn't function like other debts. It can't make you bankrupt as you pay it through the tax system. But what it does mean is that young graduates pay a much higher tax rate than everyone else. The New Statesman did analysis last year, which showed that a graduate with a student loan earning over £26,000 pays a marginal tax rate of 41%. That's made up of a 20% income tax, 12% national insurance, and 9% student loan repayment. For someone without a student loan, the equivalent rate would be 32%. For higher earners, there's a marginal 51% rate for people with a student loan. It's 42% for people without them. So, you know, that's not a high threshold. Once you're earning beyond £26,000, you end up paying 42% marginal tax rate because you've got that 9% student loan repayment. Now, the other point I wanted to pick up on was house prices. Owen rightly argued that the reason our generation can't afford houses isn't because we've suddenly gained very, very expensive taste when it comes to decor. It's instead that they have become much, much, much more expensive. Now, I'm going to show you a stat I have shown you before because I'm a little bit obsessed with it. So this is Wolfham Forest. It's the London borough where I come from. Now, in 1997, houses there cost three and a half times the average yearly wage. By last year, they had gone up to 15.6 times the annual yearly earnings. Now, it's the same story in the rest of London and around much of the country. So the reason I and my schoolmates can't buy houses where we're from isn't because we're more picky than our parents. We like nicer carpets. It's relative to incomes. Houses are five times more expensive than they were just 24 years ago. Aaron, how long can this situation go on? And how much of the public do you think are living in the fantasy land of that guy who was calling into Channel 5, where they think that any problems that young people have, whether that be buying houses or moving up the career ladder or, or whatever it might be, is just down to them having being too picky, wanting too nice food or, or wanting to decorate their houses nicely? Tony's not the he's not the sharpest tool in the box, is he? I think there's, there's two arguments here. So either you, either you can say the man's a misanthrope. He's a misanthrope, right? He doesn't like other people. And misanthropes will always exist in society. They will always exist. They have always existed. They will always exist. They want to see other people fail. They like doing other people down. They like criticizing. We've all met these people in workplaces or in our social circles or at school. Unfortunately, some, some of you might have them in your family. They just like to be negative and slag other people off, right? He might be like that. But I think as well as that, we're looking at a broader social trend where people like Tony, rather than say, you know what, I'm a member of one of the most fortunate, privileged generations in human history. Let's say you're born in 1945. You've not seen any conflict on the continent of Europe. You've only known rising living standards. You've only known a, a, a very robust, powerful welfare state. You likely got on the housing ladder. And of course, many people didn't, but you likely did. And you've seen generally technological sort of change favor you. You've seen, you know, the West, broadly speaking, keep its power, economic and political power relative to the rest of the world, very, very high. Clearly, all that's, all that's falling apart. It's been falling apart for a while. You're seeing the growth, the burgeoning of a middle class in India, China, East Asia. Um, and, and you're seeing, and then by the way, that could happen and we could still be very, very, very wealthy and we could distribute wealth very well, but we're not doing that. You're seeing rising inequality in, in Europe and the United States. Now, a lot of that is inflected through age. So people say, we need to talk about capitalism, we need to talk about class, don't talk about age. Well, the facts, the facts, right? Like you say, Michael, home ownership has collapsed since 2008. I think it's down, it changed all the time, but I think it's down about 12, 14% from its peak, 2007. But it's particularly bad for the young. You know, people between their mid-30s, mid-40s, I think now are three times more likely to rent than they were in 2000. So that's a huge, huge shift for people that really should be owning businesses or senior in businesses, starting families, saving for retirement, the backbone of their community. They're in a position where they can help others out. Those are the very people who now can't even get on the housing ladder. Again, this is just hard fact. And what made me laugh, Michael, was when Tony said, well, when I get up, I see the, the nursery of the road, all these BMWs, 4x4s. Tony, it means you live in a posh area, mate. That's all it is. So he's tacitly confirming that he bought a property on the cheap, probably in the 70s, and he's probably made a shit ton of money on it because he lives in a nice area where you have a posh nursery. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinary, Michael. I, I, in my 20s, lived hand-to-mouth, no money in my bank account because I, I did a PhD. I hadn't done a PhD. I probably would never have lived like that, but I did live like that. I think a lot of people of our generational cohort know what that's like a lot. Certainly a lot more than Tony's cohort, by the way. A lot more. And so when we engage with this crazy mindset that somehow we're asking for more, you just have to ask, well, what's this gentleman going to have to see? You know, in 2010, we don't have food banks in this country. By 2022, millions of people have used food banks. We see rough sleeping on the rise. We see bills on the rise. Fuel's more expensive than ever. Food inflation. So what the hell is he talking about? People have got iPhones. Okay, I can go buy an iPhone 7 or 8 for 150 quid in a secondhand store, Tony. What, that's really competing with a getting on the property ladder at 25? What the hell are these people talking about? Personally, I think a lot of it comes from, Michael, the fact that, like I say, the most fortunate generation ever. They really had all the cards in their favor, more so than their grandparents and parents. And it seems now their children and grandchildren. And I think that's driving for some people, not everyone, but for some people, a lot of guilt. Because rather than say, wow, I'm so fortunate. Oh, fuck. Rather than say that, it's a lot more reassuring if you say, I had to work bloody hard for what I had to achieve. You don't understand how hard I had to work. Because if you've built your sense of self and your image of who you are and why you're valuable as a person on your hard work and your accomplishments, which is totally normal, and then people are saying, well, actually, it's a lot harder for me. Somebody like Tony takes that as a, as a personal blow, an affront. How do we sort of surmount that? I, I, I think in many cases, I, I, I don't think you can. Personally, I think somebody like Tony is probably beyond, he's probably beyond reasoning with. Yeah, I was, I was sort of thinking about this and sort of trying to take the argument seriously that sort of people of, of, of my generation or younger have it easier than people of older generations. And I, I feel like the reason the confusion arises is because there are some, and actually quite a lot of sort of elements in which people of my generation's lives are better. And that's because the world is much richer now. Right. So because of technological development, because of increases in productivity, you can buy clothes much cheaper. You can buy food much cheaper. Obviously, there are lots of people using food banks. That's a distributional issue. But food is much cheaper. Obviously, we can get iPhones that they didn't have before then. So, so they look at someone and say, on absolute terms, you look like you've got more stuff than I had when I was that age. And they're probably right. But it is on this distributional issue that it's just got much, much worse. And it, it seems to me that the attitude of that caller is basically, he kind of wants to punish young people. So sort of to make up for the fact that we have some cheaper consumer goods and slightly better technology and maybe a more liberal society. I mean, I feel in a way that my childhood was more liberal, more open, more encouraging than that of, of, of my parents and probably theirs was more than, than their parents. So, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying everything was easier for older generations. I do think that just the, the sweep of history has sort of made it to some degree easier to be of my generation. But when it comes to the politics of all this, politics was much kinder to 30-year-olds back then than it is now, I think. Probably with the exception of the number of people that go to university. But when it comes to property, when it comes to jobs, when it comes to career advancement, right now is, is not a great time to be much younger than, than Tony, who was calling into that show. I mean, what do, you, what, what do you think to that, Aaron? Do you think there is you know, an argument that we do, we do have it better than previous generations? Life expectancy, for example, is much longer if, if, if you were born when I was born than if you were born when that dude calling up Channel 5 was born. So that, there is a sense in which we do have it better than them. But it's just, why then are you punishing us by creating a really unfair society on distributional terms? I mean, I kind of disagree, actually. I don't think that's true. I think what matters most, home ownership or at least housing security, job security, communities. Walk down a high street, Michael. Walk down a high street and what that high street looked like 20, 30 years ago. I know some places are on the up, but not most places. You know, I think, and that's again, partly technological because of internet, internet shopping and so on and so forth, but it's, it's dismantled communities. It has. And so I, I, and I think, by the way, that's reflecting mental ill health, right? If, if things are so good, then why are so many people unhappy? And presumably Tony would say it's because you've got so many things, but I think on the things that matter, Michael, housing, healthcare, I would put it this way. I was born in 1984. And by the way, people born after that, I think it's getting, it's getting progressively worse. You know, I think millennials have it bad. My God, it's really bad for Gen Z. But I would love to have been born 10 years earlier. I mean, I, you know, in a way, no, of course not, because then we wouldn't have started in the borough media. But, you know, I came onto the labor market, Michael, in 2007, eight, literally the whole, the sky is falling. You know, we used to talk about spending three quid on lunch 
when we were, you know, just finished our degrees, we were talking about, we'd call it a credit crunch lunch. We'd laugh about it, but we, we could barely afford to eat, you know, a tuna sandwich for £2.50. Now, if I'd been entering the labor market 10 years earlier, very different world, 1997, Michael, very different world. Whatever you want to do, you could have been an art student and you could go into the creative industries. You could have been an English student and you'd be going to work as a teacher. You could be a maths whiz and go to work in financial services. You could not even have a degree, go and work in the construction industry. It's a very, very, very different context for people entering the labor market in 1997 to 2007. So I, I don't think that's right. I'll tell you why, Michael, because I think I'm more fortunate than people born 10 years after me. Absolutely. And I think it'd be fucking stupid if I start to say, well, they've got TikTok. What the hell are you talking about? Right. The labor market they've stepped into, sort of the social, emotional zeitgeist they've stepped into. We've seen, you know, rates of mental ill health rocket after 2007. I think it's partly about economics, probably partly about technology too. I think we've had a raft of technologies come online, social media, mobile phones, which we don't really know how to manage as a society yet. I feel very Sorry, because I'm sure many of them do very well. They're doing better than I am. But I'm very grateful for being born when I was. And also, by the way, I only paid £1,000 tuition fees for one year. So I, I, I don't buy that, Michael, because it's not how I feel in relation to those younger than me. No, it's interesting. I suppose if, if what matters most for a happy life, sort of the groundwork you need is security, you know, security of, of housing, security of, of work, or if you go out of work, like a, some unemployment benefit that's actually going to not put you into severe, extreme poverty and where you're not going to have someone constantly haranguing you and telling you that you don't deserve it and forcing you to go to hundreds of job interviews a week. I think th there is actually probably a strong arg argument that you did have more security and you could have a more relaxed life, say in the 70s, than, than you can now. I suppose this is the time where we should, you know, very much clarify we do not want to make massive generalizations about people of different age groups. Obviously, there are loads of people born in the 60s who were very left-wing. They were core to the Corbyn movement, in fact. It was always very much noted that in Labour Party meetings, some of the, the strongest, most active socialists were people who you know, were in their 60s and 70s, people who probably, you know, quite possibly, did buy a house when it was much cheaper and now it's worth a lot more money. But they definitely don't want to punish young people because they have iPhones. So we don't, we don't want to make those generalizations. I know that lots of people across all the age groups watch this show, and we very much appreciate all of you. Very equal, actually. You can see that in the YouTube stats. We sort of have basically exactly the same proportion of people across all the age groups. Aaron, uh, a, a real pleasure speaking to you this Friday evening. My pleasure, Michael. And look, I, the whole thing about ageism, I have an immense respect for anyone who's older than me because they've seen things I've not seen. That's not the point. You know, we have an economic system which, which operates through time. Somebody who's born in, you know, 1900, who sees the First World War, the Great Depression, the Second World War, they had a very different experience of the world to somebody born in the post-war era. I think it's important to, to understand that it's not about personal antipathy to this or that person. So you have a good weekend, Michael, but I don't wish a good weekend to Tony. I hope, uh, I hope a bird maybe, you know, shits on his head. <laughs> so. Tony shouldn't have a good weekend. But if you are empathetic towards other people in society, whatever age you are, I hope you have a glorious weekend. We will be back on Monday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.